You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Lars Chitka, author of The Mind of a Bee and founder of the Research Centre for Psychology at Queen Mary University of London. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Most bees are quite short-lived, not all bees. So bee queens, for example, can live for many years, up to seven years, and some stingless bees the queens can even live much longer than that, but their lives are less exciting in a sense that they are most of their lives cave animals where most of what they do is egg laying. So when we're talking about intelligence tests in bees, these are mostly done with the worker bees and they only live for a few weeks. And it might be surprising to many people that an animal this short-lived needs to learn anything at all or can learn anything at all. Because of course, in humans, the process of acquiring crucial life skills takes much longer, many years typically. So when a bee first emerges from the, the pupa, so bees are spend their first few days actually as little grubs inside a wax pot. And at this larval stage, of course, there isn't much learning going on. They have a very pampered and easy life in that they are basically immersed in the food that they required to grow. And then they pupate and become and turn from what are formerly little helpless grubs into adult bees. And once the bee emerges from the pupa, they have a number of different tasks waiting for them, which in honeybees at least have a fairly defined sequence where a bee might in her first few days simply in, involved in the many duties inside the hive that is to clean cells, to build wax comb, to feed the larvae, and then to transition to the life as a forager. And that's what we get to see most of the time when we observe bees in the wild is that final life stage when they've left all their within hive duties in the past and are now flower foragers where they collect nectar or pollen to bring back to the colony. And in that transition, from within hive duties to what a bee does outside the hive, the whole brain gets reorganized, the so-called mushroom bodies that are association centers of the bee's brain grow tremendously in size, even before the bee ever ventures outside in preparation for all this memory that she will then have to use to memorize flowers and to memorize the environment around the hive and so on. There's been an almost Copernican revolution in general, in the animal cognition world, in recognizing that humans are not the only minds on this planet, that in fact, sophisticated minds are all around us. And we now think that based on the work that I and others have done over the past decades, that these minds are among these alien but sophisticated minds in the environment that surrounds us. So what we've learned over the past few decades needs to be contrasted with what was known at the time when I first started. And it was already known that bees can learn, but most of the learning that was considered up until then was thought to be in line with what bees need to learn on a daily basis. And that involves learning about flowers because they have to distinguish between dozens of flower species in a hive's environment. And all these flower species might differ in their nectar offerings and so on. Bees have to learn to be careful shoppers in that flower supermarket. That is, they have to identify the flowers that are best and to identify them by the displays that these flowers have. So the best flowers might be 
blue and bilaterally symmetrical and have a certain smell. And bees can remember that and then focus their future foraging efforts on just these flowers. And it was also already known for a long time that bees can have very good spatial memories because they have a hive to which they must return. If they can't do that, then in social bees, they're lost. They can't survive on their own. And everything they've collected will be lost to the young that are inside that nest and that need to be provisioned with food. So there's a very strong selection pressure to learn such things. But what we've learned since then is that the intelligence of bees extends way beyond what everyone could sort of guess they might have to learn in their natural environment. We've learned that they can count, that they can recognize images of human faces, that they can learn to form simple categories, that they can even use objects in a manner equivalent to simple tool use and learn such things by observing other skilled individuals manipulating them. And more recently, based on this work on bee intelligence, at some point we also ask ourselves, well, if they're that smart, maybe they're also sentient. Is there a form of feeling in bees? And that, of course, is a question much harder to study because you can't ask them how they feel. You can't explore their emotional world in the same easy way as you can do with humans. So we need to use experimental paradigms borrowed from vertebrate psychology to see if bees by those same criteria might exhibit emotion-like states, but it seems they do. So I guess many of us are now aware that bees are in trouble due to man-made changes to the environment. Large-scale industrial agriculture, of course, means that often there are no floral resources over very large areas of farmland. And bees' flexibility in locating food sources, of course, can cope with that to some extent because they're very good at locating patches. But this ability only goes so far. Of course, if there literally are no flowers left or very few, then their learning ability won't help them very much. In addition, of course, there is very heavy usage of pesticides and herbicides in industrial agriculture. And these substances in many cases, have been uh, designed to be lethal to, or at least harmful to insects because they're meant to keep herbivores at bay. And of course, often, even if insects don't eat the leaves, flower-visiting insects still get exposed to them in the contents of flora nectar or pollen. So they carry these poisons back to their hives, their nests, albeit perhaps in lower concentrations that they're available in the leaves, but they're still present at a level that's harmful to bees, that affects their navigation, that affects the health of their young, and so on. So these man-made changes have huge impacts on bees, and this is typically measured in those bees that are least affected, that is honeybees. Honeybees are, of course, not under threat. They're a domesticated animal that has a lobby and is well looked after by beekeepers. Yet even in those, there are uh, very appreciable detrimental health effects of the landscape uh, changes that we've imposed on bees, as well as the use of all of these chemicals. But these effects are much more likely to adversely affect the thousands of solitary bee species, the wild bee species that are also out there, and which have no beekeepers to look after them, no political lobby, and so on. And so 
these many man-made changes affect bees in multiple ways. You mentioned, for example, their navigation, their magnetic compasses, and so on. So it's known that pesticides affect bees' abilities to navigate successfully back to their hives. They affect their abilities to learn. And of course, they're also toxic to the larvae that are fed the diets that contain pesticides. So navigation naturally makes use of a number of different sources of information. You mentioned polarization vision. And before perhaps we come to polarization vision, I should zoom out a little bit and explain that bees use a sun compass. So the sun, of course, is in reliable positions at different times of day and therefore can be used as a compass. However, it's actually quite a bit more difficult than using a familiar magnetic compass because with a magnetic compass, the needle always points north, right? Whereas the sun, depending on what time of day it is, of course, in different positions. So if you want to find a food source that's due south of the hive using a sun compass, then that food source will be, if you're on the northern hemisphere, will be in the direction of the sun in the middle of the day. It will be 90 degrees to the right of the sun early in the morning and 90 degrees to the left of the sun in the evening. So you cannot use the sun as a compass cue unless you also have a sense of time. And bees have that too. They have an inner clock, a so-called circadian clock. They know what time it is and can use that knowledge together with the current position of the sun to navigate to a particular destination. And an additional challenge, of course, if you're using the sun for navigation, is that the sun's not always visible. So you, you might have a situation where the sun is hidden behind clouds, or it's currently behind a mountain, or it's even if it's still light, it might be just below the horizon. So then what do you do? If you can't see the sun, but you want to use a sun compass, how do you find your way? And this is where polarization vision comes in. So the you might recall from school lessons that light has both particle type of properties, it has light quanta, as well as wave properties. So it swings in a particular direction in the same way as, let's say, if you attach a rope to one wall and then shake the rope up and down at the other end, it swings in one particular direction, not another one. And light has such wave properties, which we cannot see. We can't see the direction in which light swings, but bees and other insects can. And that's what's called polarization vision. They can tell the direction in which the light waves oscillate, so to speak. And it turns out that the pattern in the skylight with which light swings depends on where the sun currently is. So the whole sky dome has a pattern of polarized light that depends on where the sun is. And that means that even if you can only see patches of skylight, but not the sun, you can still, using your polarized light vision, reconstruct where the sun currently is. And that means that with polarization vision, you can navigate using a sun compass, even if you can't see the sun. And that, of course, is a remarkable ability that's inside, entirely outside what we can imagine how one might perceive the sky dome full of different polarized light vectors. So this ability of viewing the sky dome with the patterns of polarized light in it is, of course, 
something that is entirely outside our imagination, but it's something that bees and other insects can use on a daily basis for successful navigation. Yeah, so I think this observation that there are sensory cues available that are either completely different to what's available to us, including, let's say, a magnetic compass sense that's accessible to some animals but not us, and also within the sensory modalities that we have available, you find often that different animals, including bees, use them completely differently or have a completely different spectrum. So bees can see ultraviolet light, we cannot, and so on. Bats can hear ultrasound, but we cannot. And we think because the way we sense our world is comprehensive and it feels comprehensive to us, and we feel that there is validity to how we see it, we think that is a kind of complete picture of the environment and the veridical representation of what is out there, that is not the case. So other animals see the same world completely different to how we do. And so there are limitations. We only see certain parts of the environment or perceive certain parts of the environment. That's those parts that evolution has given us the kinds of sensors for that have been beneficial in our evolutionary past, but it's by no means a veridical or complete reflection of the environment. If you really want to discover things and feel that excitement of finding new things that no one's found out before, the only way I think to do that is to go into a field that inspires you and to be, rather than being motivated by funding success and so on, is to be motivated by the kinds of things that you study and that you might find out. More broadly, of course, in the outside research world, yes, the world of bees is under threat. And that is not because bees are singled out, but because bees live in the environment that we all share. And they're kind of canary in the coal mine for what's going on more largely in destroying our environment. And in a sense, bees are, I think, a useful sort of mascot, an icon to highlight these troubles, but they are only a signpost of other things that are that are also under threat. And as you've pointed out, we need the bees for our own food because they pollinate our crops and they pollinate the flowers that we enjoy and so on. But I think that their utility for us is not the only reason to support them and their environment. I think the growing appreciation that the world that surrounds us is full of sophisticated and unique minds places on us a kind of onus and obligation to preserve the diversity of these minds that are out there and make sure that they continue to thrive. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.